0: Now, American essayist James Baldwin is said to, through his work, penetrate and analyze the rage of being Black in America and convert it into a recognizable human emotion. However, while Baldwin's views on love and shame have received scholarly attention, for example, his views on anger have not. Now, this is surprising, given that Baldwin is often described as angry his Cambridge Union debate for William Buckley described him as a tormented writer who celebrates his bitterness against the white community. When a post volume of Baldwin's later essays were released in 2010, writer Jeremiah MacArthur proclaimed he's been dead for 23 years, but Jimmy Baldwin is still angry. His anger still has not gone unnoticed, but the lack of scholarly attention to Baldwin's views is also surprising since Baldwin had lots to say about anger. When scholars do focus on Baldwin and anger, it's usually confined to Baldwin's rhetorical politics of black rage, rhetoric that Jeffrey Kirps describes as a civic honesty, tinted by anger about the habits of speech and action that collectively collude to facilitate our collective political death. His thoughts on anger, more properly put as I see it, his account of black rage is largely ignored. I think that this is an unfortunate reality that must be remedied. So what I aim to elucidate in this talk is Baldwin's moral psychology of anger in general and Black rage, in particular, as seen in his nonfiction. And I use anger and rage interchangeably throughout uh, this talk, although the term rage is often used to apply to intense and irrational anger. I use Black rage to refer to the anger of Black folk at racism and racists, and in this way, I follow in the tradition of race theorists like bell hooks and Cornel West who use the phrase to describe a specific possessor and target of anger. I'll show that Baldwin's thinking is significant for moral psychology and is relevant to important questions at the intersection of philosophy of emotions, race and social philosophy. It also has pragmatic application to present day anti-racist struggle. Overall, my aim is to explore Baldwin's theoretical accounts of black rage. And I'll argue that his account dignifies blacks by centering them as people with agential capacities and two provides them um, with a, I guess we can say a problematic politics of rage that is useful against white supremacy and racial injustice. All right, so in the first part of this talk, I argue that Baldwin provides an elaborate account of black rage an account often undescribed in the philosophical literature through an exploration and examination of the Black American experience. And while articulating a sophisticated cognitive and bodily view of anger along the way, or at least that's what I'll attempt to do. And then I'll also explain how he reconciles questions of agency with Black rage through his belief of the ever-present role of human agency throughout anger's different phases. And lastly, in the final part of the talk, I'll show how Baldwin can help us respond to ancient and contemporary critics concerned with anger's counterproductivity by examining his distinction between useless and useful anger. So let's first talk about Black rage. So in his essay notes of a a native son, Baldwin describes his first experience of racial discrimination while living and working in New Jersey for a brief time as a northerner He never thought that people would look at him and expect him to behave the way that they expected Southern Negroes to behave. Not only did he experience racial animosity at the defense plants where he worked, he also faced discrimination at restaurants, bars, and other public places. It was during this time in New Jersey that Baldwin admits that for the first time he contracted some dread, some chronic disease. He describes it as bodily, as a pounding in the skull and fire in the bowels. He notes its permanency and its regularity when he writes, once this disease is contracted, one can never really be carefree again, for the fever without an instant warning can recur at any moment. And Baldwin is not describing a cold or a migraine, he's describing rage. And he suggests that he is not alone in feeling it. He writes, there is not a Negro alive who does not have this rage in his blood. It is here that Ball moves from simply giving an account of anger at a moral injury or a moral injustice to an account of Black rage. Anger at moral injury can arise in response to a variety of wrongdoings, regardless of its racial nature. The cause can be a single incident, and it's likely to cool and disappear once that wrongdoing has been rectified. However, Black rage is specific and what it is responding to and thus it is different. Black rage has several causes according to Baldwin. Racial mistreatment is the first cause of the rage that every Negro alive has. This rage hangs over the streets of Harlem like storm clouds as the outrage witness police officers populate their neighborhoods. Black inhabitants have this rage, not only because they have been surveilled but also disenfranchised, forced to live in unlivable conditions and presented with little to no opportunities to escape. It is then not surprising that Baldwin alternates the term Black wage rage with fury and frustration and rage and despair. However, one shouldn't think that this rage is merely self-referential. Black rage is not only in response to the mistreatment that one as Black experiences, it is also a response to the ever-present ever mistreatment of other Blacks. Baldwin It's clear, part of the rage is this. It isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you all the time. Now, the use of all the time is telling. Black rage is a response not only to past harms, it is a response to the continual mistreatment of Blacks. Baldwin also notes that the rage is in response to the most extraordinary and criminal indifference the indifference and ignorance of the most white people in this country. Now, we must be careful not to lump indifference and ignorance together. Indifference is agnitudinal, ignorance is epistemic. So let's address each in turn. While there are whites who directly mistreat blacks, there are many who witness it with indifference. They lack sympathy and compassion in the face of black suffering. The other cause is socially epistemic in nature. It is an example of what Charles Mills describes as white ignorance. And Mills credits Baldwin and other 20th century African-Americans with making it a theme in their work. These writers often point out the epistemic asymmetry between whites and blacks in which they know whites well, but are rarely seen and known by them. Baldwin notes that Blacks have a bottomless anger because they are forced to learn far more about whites than whites have to learn about them. Knowledge about Blacks is a luxury for whites. On the other hand, knowledge about whites is part of Black folks' survival. As Baldwin describes in Nobody Knows My Name, no one in the world knows Americans better than the American Negro. This is because he has had to watch you, outwit you, deal with you, and bear you, and sometimes even bleed and die with you ever since we got here. Although Baldwin acknowledges that he has often used the asymmetry as a way to outwit whites and thus survive, the very fact that it exists is cause for the rage. When whites decide to learn about Blacks, this creates Black fury because for Baldwin, this sudden awareness or need to know only highlights the fact that Black people's humanity has occupied so little place in the white man's mind. And one comes to have Black rage through a particular epistemic position? Note that Baldwin states that there is not a Negro alive who does not have this rage in his blood. If Baldwin means that every Black person has this rage, then the meaning of the claim will still hold absent of the word alive since it is already presumed that the subject Negro refers to subjects in the present tense. However, I think the use of the term alive is intentional and not redundant. Alive does not refer to physical life, but an enlightened one. Baldwin claims that only Negroes with a certain level of consciousness have this rage, the black rage is born out of an examined life. An examined life of Baldwin is a life of endless questioning, re-examining, journey further, on examination, criticizing and intellectual activity where one is willing to be pierced by the sword of truth. The subject of examination is oneself and the world. An examined life requires an engagement with the past and the present, learning and understanding through self-appraisal and unwillingness to see through the world of illusions. The primary illusion in America for Baldwin is its exceptionalism, is an illusion that America actually lives up to the standards it sets for itself and has achieved freedom in every way. But Negroes alive know better. This knowing better, born out of examination, creates an anger, not a bliss or a contentment. For Baldwin, as it was for Socrates, the unexamined life, is not worth living. It is possible that Blacks who do not have this rage have not lived an examined life. Baldwin in No Name in the Street gives an example of this when he recalls gifting the suit he wore to Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral to an old friend. When he visited him, Baldwin could not understand how nothing seemed to have touched this man. He was, for Baldwin, unknowable about the raging school battle or anti poverty pro- program. He seemed little touched by the catechism in his own house and all around him as he was by the mail he handled every day. Baldwin implicitly contrasts his friend with his stepdaughter who, although possessed with what Baldwin describes as an indigestible fury, she had felt anger at injustice. Their discussion of Vietnam points to the illusion that his friend had accepted, an illusion that arises as a result of an unexamined life thus produces a non-angry Black man. His friend not only defends the war, but also yells, let me tell you what I think we're trying to do there. His use of we're is evidence of his unexamined life. For according to Baldwin, not only had his friend bought into America's myth concerning the war, but he had also bought into the illusion that he as a Black man is sufficient for a Black person, or he is part of the we of America. And this is not to say that Black rage is enough for a Black person to live an examined life. Rather, it is to claim that Black rage is born out of an examined life. Recall, there are other things for Baldwin that are necessary for an examined life. They are what epistemologists refer to as intellectual courage, attentiveness, honesty, and love of truth. Black rage caused by racial mistreatment and a centrum, a, and a centrical, or a, always get this word, asymmetry, asymmetrical, there you go, racial knowledge, and brought about through an exam in life, was articulated by Black leaders like the Black Panthers and Elijah Muhammad. In no name in the street, Baldwin describes he Newton, leader of the Black Panthers, standing in City Hall with a gun, challenging the policeman's gun and their right to be in the ghetto. Baldwin claims that what got the Panthers so much attention and pushback? was that they, quote, articulated the rage and repudiated the humiliation of thousands, more millions, end quote. Through this rage, they expressed Black America's grievances. Perhaps this is also why Baldwin felt that he knew something about the pain as well as the fury of Elijah Muhammad, leader of the Nation of Islam. Although he considered Elijah's and his responsibilities to be different, Baldwin, as an alive Black man, understood the fury, would it had the same cause for him and countless others. Now, Baldwin is not claiming that black rage brought about by these causes is a collective emotion. He is not suggesting that the racial groups called blacks have intentional attitudes and thus consciousness. Neither should we take the term black rage to refer to a single emotion attributed to groups rather than to individuals, is what there is called the plural subject model. Nor is Baldwin claiming that all Blacks experience anger at the same object, which is usually referred to as the shared emotion model. Rather Baldwin is describing an individual emotion that has a variety of causes and it is not necessarily experienced by all Blacks For whether one has this rage depends on one's level of consciousness. Black rage on Baldwin's view is an affective and cognitive response felt by Blacks who experience and witness the continual mistreatment as well as indifference to and ignorance of their suffering. That is to say though, or this is not to say though that black race just is an emotion experienced by individual blacks. Although it is an individual rather than a collective emotion, it arises due to a sense of collectivity and can lead to collective action as historical and present day social movements highlight. call. It comes about due to witnessing the experience of others. And as we shall see, it is a useful part, according to Baldwin, because of the positive things that it communicates to black folk and for how it leads to collective action with other outrage citizens. However, there are moments in which one's black rage is cool. Then there are times in which it reaches a boil as in the case of Baldwin in New Jersey, for which I will provide more details. Baldwin has ideas about what we can do and should do with this cool and boiling rage. And in doing so, I argue that he illuminates the agential capacities that blacks have in the various angry stages. And he does it in ways, that counter negative stereotypes of them as well as their anger. Okay. So if black rage is present and every black person alive due to these causes, then what is the place of agency in Baldwin's account of Black rage? That is, do Blacks have the capacity to act and, choose and to choose given the presence of Black rage? So in what follows, I'm gonna to try to argue that Baldwin's belief in human possibilities, and because he believes in human possibilities, he thinks that we have agency at every phase of Black rage. In the notes of a Native Son passage previously cited, Bowen continues, it that is black rage can wreck more important things than race relations. One has the choice merely of living with it consciously or surrendering to it. Now, I interpret to live consciously with this rage to mean to have it under control. To surrender to it means to allow rage to control you. While the first option allows for agency agency may sound puzzling in the context in which rage controls the subject. So for this reason, I wanna give attention to the ways in which one might surrender to the rage and examine to what extent agency has a place. Now there are two ways of surrendering. Baldwin provides two examples of what it is to surrender to rage. And the first example, the angry agent engages in a violent revengeful act that could result in his or her death's target. On his last night in New Jersey, and after experiencing many instances of racial mistreatment, Baldwin noted that he wanted to do something to crush these white faces, which was crushing me and hope. He walked into a restaurant with the anticipation that he would be discriminated against. As the waitress told him that they did not serve Negroes, all of his fury flowed towards her. His Black rage had reached a boil. He notes, I hated her for her white face and for her great astounded, frightened eyes. I felt that if she found a Black man so frightening, I would make her fright worthwhile. After realizing that he could not get close enough to grab her neck, he picked up a water pitcher and threw it in her direction. After throwing it, he seemed to come out of his rage, describing it as a frozen blood abruptly thawed he was able to escape the restaurant with his life. The second example of surrendering to rage occurs in The Devil Finds Work. And it's in this example that the angry agent engages in a verbal act that given her vulnerability to white violence could result in her death. To support Baldwin's view that the movie Lady Sings the Blues has nothing to do with Billie Holiday. Baldwin described the scene from the movie that is not in the book. At a stop on the road with her bandmates, Billy sees a group of blacks grieving as the black body hangs from a tree. after, the Ku Klux Klan, appears marching on the main street nearby. Billy, filled with rage upon viewing the lynched body, makes herself visible and curses at the clan. Like Baldwin, her and her white bandmates are able to escape. Now Baldwin thinks that this encounter did not happen, not only because it is not in the book, but because as he writes, One of the necessities of being Black and knowing it is to accept the hard discipline, learning to avoid useless anger and needless loss of life. Every mother and his mother's mother's brother is needed. While Baldwin is correct to point out the scene's inconsistency from the book, the fact that it should not happen doesn't support the fact that it did not happen. Recall, Baldwin also surrendered to anger. However, more importantly, I think Baldwin is making a normative claim. Consciously living with anger, that is re- controlling it, requires us to avoid useless anger. Surrendering to anger, that is allowing it to control you, can result in a loss of Black life. This should not happen because every Black life is needed. Given what Blacks know about whites, they know better, for they are schooled in adversity long before white people are they perceive danger far more swiftly. They know their white comrades, brothers, far better than the comrade does. Before elaborating on the useless anger that Paul reinforces or references, it is worth examining the agency involved in living with the rage consciously and surrendering to it. And note Baldwin's use of choice in the above passage. He thinks that we have to choose or we have a choice either to control our anger or allow our anger to control us. But this picture is too simplistic. At what point do we have a choice? Now, the stoic Seneca thinks that anger undergoes a three-stage process. The first stage, the emotion begins without reason being involved. Indeed, he thinks the first stage should not even be called, called anger since the agent is experiencing an impression and not a passion. It is involuntary bodily movements, no more anger than the impression itself, he says. In the second stage, the emotion comes into being and reason can operate here with the agent of choosing to resist or surrender to it. Here, according to Seneca, anger appears. It's born from deliberation and can be eradicated by deliberation. In the third stage, anger is fully developed and it is beyond the capacity of control. Seneca writes, it desires vengeance, having overthrown reason. Now Seneca thinks that choice only occurs in the second stage. The second stage seems to fit with Baldwin's simplistic picture, avoid or surrender. But is there choice on Baldwin's view in the other stages? Baldwin's account of the relationship between examine life and Black rage rejects Seneca's first stage view for we come to be angry by living and examined life. This is not to say that we can think ourselves into the emotion or that we should fully reject Baldwin's disease metaphor. Rather, it acknowledges that reason is not fully absent in the first stage. On the other hand, the New Jersey restaurant incident seems to support Seneca's third stage view. Baldwin writes, when we re-enter the streets, Something happened to me which had the force of an optical illusion. I felt a click at the nape of my neck as though some interior steam connecting my head to my body had been cut. The sound of the pitcher crashing. My blood frozen abruptly thawed. I returned from whenever I had been, I saw for the first time. This description seems to illustrate at least in somatic terms. The Baldwin is being controlled by his anger. Something has happened to him. Once anger is fully developed, does Baldwin think we then lack control? If Baldwin thinks that every Black person alive already has Black rage, he would not also remind them of their choice if he did not think that they had the capacity to control it. Unlike Seneca, anger is not beyond our control for Baldwin. While both Richard Wright and Baldwin understood that to be Negroes to be enraged almost all the time and both aimed to express it. Baldwin had a solution. The first problem is how to control that rage so that it won't control you. Baldwin thought, thought that although we may have, or we all may have it, a private bigger Thomas living in the skull, we are not doomed to failure. He believed the real psychological situation of blacks is that they are always faced with a choice. Now, one might object by suggesting that the worry for Baldwin is not anger, but expressed anger. Perhaps every black person alive does have a rage inside of them, but if they let it out, they will be controlled by it. However, this contradicts Baldwin's admonishments for blacks to express their anger. It was unexpressed anger, anger that remained bottled up, never expressed to its target, that was problematic for Baldwin. He notes that inarticulate rage was all the more dangerous because it was unexpressed and therefore, therefore could turn into bitterness. Now, does Baldwin think that there is a lack of agency in boiling Black rage? Well, insofar that you can describe yourself as having been enraged, that you can recount it afterwards and reflect on how you felt, then you are agentially contributing to the action and thus have some kind of minimal agential capacity. On this view, Baldwin does not think that there's a lack of agency, even in boiling Black rage. Baldwin is able to relive the moment over and over again, like an automobile accident. He acknowledges that he had no conscious plan, but he was aware of what he wanted to do. That was to crush these white faces. Baldwin is also able to reflect on his attitudes. He writes, I had been able to, I had been ready to commit murder. Note that Baldwin never criticized the enraged state as if it is to blame for taking away his power to act otherwise. Instead, Baldwin criticizes himself for surrendering to run into the emotions and attitudes involved in the state. He writes, my life, my real life was in danger and not from anything other people might do but from the hatred I carried in my heart. It was ha- hatred he chose to carry just like he chose to enter the restaurant to not touch the waitress uh, with his hands. This inability to choose and act does not ignore his bodily experience but it explains that both can be present at the same time for Baldwin. In some, am I reading of Baldwin? There's capacity to choose throughout Black Rage's several phases, including the kind of bowling rage that he experienced. Anger is not something that we are overcome by, cannot control. Rather, it is something within our control from which deliberate action is engendered. We are not fated to one kind of anger. We have a choice to engage in the useless or useful kind and thus useless or useful action. As we shall see, it is this agential capacity that makes it possible for Blacks to protest, criticize, and create through rage, that is, to choose useful anger. More specifically, Blacks who have this anger also have control. Contra stereotypes of Blacks as irrational and out of control. Baldwin attributes agency to them in ways that humanize and dignify them as rational beings through his theoretical account. So now that we know what we can do with Black rage, and the question is, what should we do? I wanna give attention to Baldwin's useless anger and argue that it is, according to Baldwin, what blacks should avoid and a valuable concept that reveals a target of anger skeptics concerned with anger and productivity. More importantly, it provides Blacks with a pragmatic politics of rage that can be used in the service of anti-racism struggle. Let me first begin by providing a preliminary account of what useless Black rage involves. Baldwin does not claim that Black rage is useless and therefore should be avoided. On the contrary, he claims that it can become useless and when it is, it should be avoided. Black rage is not by definition useless. Black rage can be useless and useful. It is up for us to decide which version we will choose. These two examples of surrendering to rage provides a window into the nature of useless anger. Based on the holiday in New Jersey examples, one might conclude that useless anger is anger that can get you killed. If this is the case, Then Baldwin and the fictitious Billy Holiday did in fact experience useless anger given that they barely escaped after their angry episodes. But this can't be the whole story. The anger of Malcolm X and the Black Panthers could also have gotten them killed but Baldwin never described them as experiencing useless anger. The anger that he ascribes to Malcolm in particular is unfamiliar rage, a rage that articulated a love for Blacks, and apprehension of the horror of the Black condition and a determination that his beloved will be empowered to change their own condition. I wanna argue that according to Baldwin, Black rage is useless, not when it welcomes death, but when it contains hate. After the New Jersey rest- restaurant incident, Baldwin could not get over two facts that he could have killed and have been killed. But we all not take Baldwin's point to be solely focused on death. In addition, he notes that this could have occurred not because of what others did, but because of his own hatred. So I take Baldwin's concern not to be with the overwhelming power of anger, but instead with one's capacity to hate oneself and others through anger. Baldwin acknowledges that the hate that Blacks have for whites is different from the hate whites have for Blacks. The former is not born out of superiority, but the need to get the white man off his back. Nevertheless, for Baldwin, this hate can still have a murderous power over you. He calls this a self-destroying limbo, a limbo from which he could not write. It is a self-destroying state. He had witnessed his father succumb to and one that he strove to resist. Anger is useless for Baldwin, not when it prevents one from being heard, is less digestible to whites or doesn't lead to reform, it is useless when the anger contains hate and such a hate can lead to physical and existential death. So we ought not take Baldwin's caution against useless anger to be an indictment against black rage in general. And this view stands in contrast to the counterproductive argument tradition of William Buckley, Seneca, and more recently Martha Nussbaum. In her 2018 paper, The Aptness of Anger, Amir Srinivasan, gives attention to the 1965 Cambridge Union debate between Malcolm and Buckley. Buckley argues against Baldwin's politics of anger because he focuses on the past, on what has been done. However, it doesn't turn its gaze towards the future. Buckley notes, quote, Negroes have done a great deal to focus on the fact of white discrimination against Negroes. They have done a great deal to agitate a moral concern. But where, in fact, do they go now? He also claimed that this anger only leads to self-destruction and motivates white violence. For these reasons, it is counterproductive for Buckley. Now, Buckley joins a long tradition of anger skeptics. Seneca believed that anger aims at destruction. He writes of anger that it is above all other emotions, hideous and wild, raging with an utterly inhumane lust for arms, blood and tortures, anger is a short madness for this equally devoid of self-control, forgetful of kinship. Seneca's claiming that anger makes a person out of control and his anger is likely to, to lead to revenge and also break important bonds. And Nuzbaum, influenced by Aristotle, thinks anger is irrational because it conceptually has this vengeful hope, hope rooted in the thought, then one can actually undo what has already been done through revenge. Therefore, Nuzman claims that the best way to achieve a just society is through love and generosity. And they are our best options because contrary to anger, she believes that it's not status-focused, nor are these attitudes backward-looking, but focused on the future. Srinivasan argues that there is more to anger, normatively speaking, than its effects taking on a moderate functionalist view in which she admits that anger has typical behavior expressions and can be altered by cultural programming, Srinivasan claims that we should not ignore anger's aptness even when counterproductive. On her view, the fact that anger could be counterproductive does not provide us with decisive reasons not to get angry. But another point is worth mentioning. Srinivasan continues by claiming that Buckley and other critics' real target is not anger after not, but it's stereotypical expressions. That is to say, their worries are directed towards stereotypical angry behavior, violent or seemingly out of control expressions of anger, for example. However, I do not think that anger skeptics like Bugley and Nosebum's real target is only anger stereotypical expression. There are times in which we are angry and vengeful expressions are not part of the picture. Being angry with our children is an example. I also do not think that Baldwin is concerned with angry stereotypical expressions as I have already addressed. The expression will be all things considered the same, whether it is useless or useful anger. For example, Billie Holiday, when angry, might curse at the television, just as she cursed at the the Klan. Baldwin, when angry, might throw a pitcher of water on a garden lawn, just as he threw a pitcher at the white waitress. The worry for angry skeptics as well as Baldwin cannot be reduced to expression. What Baldwin's work highlights is that the real target is a protracted anger, which tends towards hatred and is then manifested in schemes of retaliation and vengeance, at least according to Robert Solomon. In Baldwin's view, what is the difference between useful and useless anger is the presence of hate in the latter. This is not merely an expressive counterproductive issue for Baldwin. More importantly, it is an internal counter love issue. Baldwin's criticism of anger appears only when it is tied to hate. Hear Baldwin at length from a talk to teachers. He writes, what I am trying to get at is that by the time the Negro child has had effectively almost all the doors of opportunity slammed into space, There are very few things that he can do about it. He can more or less accept it with an absolute, inarticulate and dangerous rage inside. All the more dangerous because it is never expressed. It is precisely those silent people whom white people see every day of their lives. I mean, your porter and your maid, for example. He says, they really hate you, really hate you because in their eyes, and they're right, you stand between them and life. Black rage is not dangerous when it rise in intensity. It's dangerous when it contains hate, hatred for whites and self-hatred. This is useless anger for Baldwin and useless anger should be avoided. Now, given this, what can we infer about useful anger on Baldwin's account? Rather than containing hate, useful Black rage contains love. It involves and expresses love for Black people, a love that also involves affirming and involving Black life without giving in to the hate and supremacy that befalls white races. It must be noted that hatred towards whites does not necessarily suggest a love for Black people. Baldwin admits, and his essay, Autobiographical Notes, that his hatred of whites did not mean that he loved Black folks, but he at once despised them because they had failed to produce Rembrandt. On the other hand, use for Black rage both avoids hatreds of whites and involves a love for Blacks. Bell Hooks criticizes Cornell West for his depiction of Malcolm X's Black rage because she thinks that because West makes rage synonymous with great love for Black people, and by collapsing Malcolm's rage and his love, West attempts to explain that rage away, to temper it. For Hooks, Malcolm's rage was not just about love, it's about his commitment to justice. Is my reading of Useful Black Rage vulnerable to Hooks' criticism? Well, I do not think that collapsing or connecting rage with love is necessarily an act of tempering the rage. The strength of the temper accusation will depend on one's view of love. The love that Baldwin had in mind was not a kind that would successfully temper the rage, rather, it makes it much more revolutionary, by which I mean it counters the status quo and its dominant values. And it focuses on resistance and freedom. Consider that Baldwin thought that Negroes in this country are really taught to despise themselves from the moment their eyes open to the world. Political theorist Crystal Braun remarks on Baldwin's love and stance as follows Love requires. An investment of mind but also of spirit. Racial oppression abuse tend to motivate a person to turn the attention of the oppressed and the abuse on herself. This broadly leads to despair and despair can subsequently manifest self-hatred and self-pity. Love can undo this despair and prevent the abuse. Thus, any decolonial project would entail a call to love in order to undo colonial destruction and assert humanity and hope for the disenfranchised, amongst other things. Black theologian James Cone reminds us that love and Blackness undermines white supremacy. Hook's in later chapters of her book, Killing Racism, even motivates the idea of love and Blackness as political resistance. Claiming that Black rage is useful when it involves or expresses a love for Black people is not a move to temper the rage it reveals just how radical and useful that rage is since the very idea is a resistant and refusal enterprise. In this sense, one might be tempted to think that Baldwin's account of black rage is really an example of what Nussbaum or Mother Nussbaum calls transistent anger. Unlike garden variety anger, which on her account is status focused and involves a payback wish, Transition anger does not contain a desire for retribution, but rather, in her words, always extends to the wrong door a generous type of love and hope for a future of cooperation and constructive work. While she admits that transition anger lacks the, the retributive wish and can be used in the service of social goals, she thinks that it's rarely practiced in its pure form. When she writes in the 2016 book, anger and forgiveness about revolutionary leaders, such as Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela, she notes to the extent that any of them admitted anger as acceptable, it was either our borderline species of transition anger, a sense of outrage without any wish for ill to befall the offender or else a brief episode of real anger, but leading quickly to the transition. However, I believe her account of transition anger is too focused on the wrong door. And in this way, it differs from Baldwin's account of black rage. Nussbaum's transition anger overemphasizes extending sympathy, respect, friendship, and generosity to the wrong door. Baldwin's account of black rage, however, helps us to see that anger is not merely about extending love to a white wrong door, but to the black person who has been wrong. It's not just about hoping in a cooperative future with the wrongdoer, but hoping in the black person who has been wrong. To put it bluntly, Baldwin's account of black rage, decenters whiteness and places black life at its center. And it is able to do this in ways that escapes hatred and disrespect. Useful black rage is also critical. Now, anger is a form of protest against wrongdoing. And protest is not simply an appeal to white sympathy or demand the whites give blacks what they deserve. Protest is about announcing wrongdoing, expressing disappropriation and holding others to account. Baldwin used his vocation as a witness and his black rage to criticize America perpetually. He uses black rage to accuse my country and my countrymen. They have destroyed and are destroying Hundreds of thousands of lies and do not know it, or and do not want to know it. And in doing so, his Black rage was useful. We can also apply this aspect of criticality and usefulness to the interpersonal. And her account is anger as a political emotion. Celine LeBouff, using France Bonnard as a point of analysis, argues that rage can awaken him to his oppression, but it also sets the stage for reflections on racism transcend the desire for revenge. She notes that even if it is impure, that is Black anger, as Nussbaum describes, it can still be instrumentally valuable since it opens up space for questioning racist societies, its value rests on its effects on the psychology of the oppressed, among other things. I agree. In the case of Baldwin, useful anger is not only anger brought about by an alive consciousness, but it rests on the effects that this questioning and examination has on the black person. In additioning, or in addition, this question also becomes useful, since it is a prerequisite to social action, action that is rarely engaged on alone, but instead undertaken in solidarity with other outraged citizens who are motivated to act because of their black rage. Baldwin writes, "I'm not a doom monger. We don't look at it." You can't change it, you've got to look at it. Useful black rage is also creative. Baldwin knew that his rage was useless when he was unable to write. Recall that it was a self destroying limbo of hatred and fear from which he could not write. He can therefore, or we can therefore infer that useful rage was rage allowed him to write. This creative black rage hit him while in Paris while looking at a picture of 50 year old Dorothy Counts with attacked by a white mob on her way to school in Charlotte, North Carolina. Although he would stay in Europe another year, Baldwin's self described fury brought about by the image is what would eventually lead him to pay his dues by visiting the South to bear witness and record his account and thoughts and such works as No Name in the Street. When he recounts Billy Howday's rage, what makes it useless for Baldwin is his hatred. What would make it useful, at least in part? Be its motivating force in the creation of the bittersweet tune, Strange Fruit. Baldwin acknowledges that protest literature, like Richard Wright's native son, Angry Writing, was useful and that it allowed him for the first time in his life to see express the sorrow, the rage, and the murderous bitterness which was eating up my life and those around me. He admits that Wright's work was an immense liberation and revelation for him. However, Baldwin's criticism of Native Son was not that Wright used his anger to create literature. As one of the last angry productions that recorded his days of anger, Native Son's overwhelming limitation was, according to Baldwin, it's depiction of Blacks and a fantastic and fearful image with no tradition of social connections. The image of Bigger Thomas presented a certain picture of Black rage that fed into myths of Montrosehurst Blacks who had all the inevitable Potential or potential for violence. Such a myth provided more immunity from individual and collective responsibility. In other words, it falsely illustrated a black rage that was absent of agency and lacked love and creativity. It depicted a false view of black rage as patholog- pathological and always useless. Note that black rage usefulness does not depend on its ability to bring about any reform Black rage, with its love, criticality, and creativity is useful because it communicates disapprobation of injustice and affirms love and value of and solidarity with blacks. While black rage may be criticized for discouraging uptake by whites, inciting white violence, or being merely cathartic and not politically efficacious, Baldwin helped us to see that its usefulness cannot be measured solely in terms of political contributions. He shows that black rage is useful when it satisfies other purposes. Now, what is the relationship between agency and this useful anger? Black rage, like, or black folk like other moral agents are able to deliberate and to act and thus make their anger useful from which they can use then, use to value others, to protest oppressive conditions and ultimately change their world. And it's this ability to choose that Baldwin calls our attention to. He highlights how Black agency is revealed, both in Black's ability to not be controlled by anger, as well as to choose what their anger would do in the world. Black rage is not just something that Black folk can feel. There's also a way to act in the world. Baldwin reminds us that Black rage is a way to respond to the world in a critical, loving and creative way, all in the service, of dismantling the racial causes and conditions for it. And in doing so, Baldwin not only defends an emotion, but he also defends black life and black people's moral and political possibilities. Now, fortunate for me as a human being, living in a society that has a lot of problems with racial injustice, but also as a scholar who is engaged in the philosophy of emotion, you know, I'm happy that anger is currently undergoing a resurgence in philosophy. Moral psychologists are exploring the nature and the function of anger. Political philosophers are exploring its role in public life. And ethicists are examining its aptness, virtue, and vices. As philosophers explore these themes, I think it's important for them to not only have conversations with each other, But also to rely on work being done in the empirical sciences and in the humanities. Among the humanists that we can benefit from is James Baldwin. As a writer who helped explore the complexity of the Black experience and the white supremacy that inflicts it, Baldwin had a lot to say about the anger of Black folk and has a unique gift of combining both the empirical and the theoretical in a way that not only provides answers to philosophical questions concerning anger, poses important ones as well. Baldwin helps us to understand the nature and the causes of a unique type of anger of the oppressed. He helps us to recognize our agential capacities at each angry stage. And he helps us to make use of guidelines to evaluate and to use the emotion. In addition, he helps us to see the connection between self-examination, criticality, emotions, and agency. Through an examination of oneself and a racist world, an anger is born, that is, Black rage. This anger contributes to a criticality that is necessary for reporting the results of one's examination for challenging others to see and to live differently. Throughout this process of anger, however, the conscious person with Black rage has not necessarily lost control. Rather, she is exercising her agential capacities and is capable of using her rage in useful ways as she struggles against anti-Black racism. But Baldwin's contribution, is not simply a theoretical one. As racial injustice and anti-Black racism continue to manifest itself in the United States, many Blacks have responded with anger. Although their anger is a fitting response to such wrongdoing, many have criticized their anger, often alluding to its backward looking focus, its tendency towards violence, and his inability to persuade the powerful to give in to angry people's demands. This presents a dilemma for the racially oppressed. Should they hold on to their anger without guilt and use it for change? Or should they make attempts to replace it with more positive emotions like love and compassion? Baldwin is a wonderful resource for thinking that the first option is worth our consideration. He helps us to see that Black rage is not pathological. It is rational, warranted, inclusive, and useful. He also helps to see that Black people who are angry are not necessarily out of control, selfish, or ignorant. In some, Baldwin's work enriches our view on the emotional experience, as well as the moral and political conditions that create it. And he does it by converting it, that is Black rage, into a recognizable human emotion while also making those who feel it recognizable as moral and political agents, we are indebted to him for such a contribution. Thank you.